All right, what is going on, everybody? This is your man, L. Jamal, coming through with another edition of Never Out of Bounds. This is a place where you can say what you want as long as you got the facts. We have a lot to talk about today uh, in terms of politics. We have uh, a celebration of life in the case of John Witherspoon to go over. I want to talk a little bit about him as well. Of course, he passed last week, RIP. We also have some college football to talk about. Uh, no scores, just some news, and then also the same thing with some uh, baseball as well. We have some end of the season awards for the MLB so we gotta get through all that today um, and maybe later on tonight I might give you guys some coverage on Thursday night football uh, but I might say that for tomorrow so we can do some three key points and some three key questions as well. No power rankings this week, uh, but let's get right into it, of course, with these election results. Uh, first off, we have in Kentucky, we, well, actually, we have three key elections on the national level we have to get through first. I'm going to start off in Kentucky, uh, the, and that was for the gut race for governor. Democrat Annie Bashir beats out Republican incumbent Matt Bevin. Uh, now, this, the margin was slim, so Bevin has stated that he would not concede. Bashir plans to reverse a previous state law, which was backed by Trump, which required people to work or receive job training in order to receive Medicaid. And this would save, uh, this would actually, I'm sorry, this would retain access to uh, health care for 95,000 people. So you already see, uh, well, if, and that's if he's able, of course, uh, the victory for him stands. He stays, uh, and he, of course, he's able to pass that law in. So you already see uh, in the case in Kentucky, you already see Democrats at work trying to uh, kind of unravel some some uh, what you call conservative work. And in Virginia, uh, Democrats take control of the Virginia state legislature, including the House of Delegates and also the Senate. Uh, Democrats are looking to push uh, some form of gun control. And this is this is where all the conservatives, a.k.a. the Republicans, get really scared. Oh, they want to take all the guns away. They want to take all our guns, do this, that and the other. Uh, usually uh, what it uh, t what it comes down to. And if you actually listen to a Democrat uh, or a Democratic voter who who's understanding what's going on, uh, as opposed to just 95 or just 98 percent of Fox News. And that's all you watch or somebody that's conservative. I'm talking for my you know conservative people out there. If you if you talk to others or you know uh, or actually ask other people uh, th that's not necessarily conservative, you'd get a different take on this. And usually, what it comes down to is it's not so much uh, taking the ban of guns or taking the way of guns that has not been ever said. I think only the extreme case I think was Mayor De Blasio out of New York. But outside of him, usually what it comes down to is some form of control, meaning uh, background checks, which the Republicans decided they didn't want to do anymore. That's what's led to your issues and the shootings in the schools. Nobody wants to say that, but they re they repealed a re Obama era condition that actually made it. Uh, well, you could not attain uh, firearms if you had a mental illness. Uh, now under Trump's new laws or whatever he decided to what he decided to take back or roll back people with mental issues can buy firearms you needed background checks uh, under democratic rule that is the issue that is the difference Republicans for whatever reason they don't want that they figure we well course because they're in the bed they're in bed with the nra and that makes that's a that's a money generating relationship so that's the issue here and really the biggest if there is going to be a, if they do want to ban 
nine times out of ten, the band just encompasses semi-automatic and automatic weapons. And I'm going to be honest with you, unless you have a military, uh, a true military or police background, I don't feel like nobody really needs a semi-automatic weapon. There's nothing wrong with pistols. There's nothing wrong with a, a shotgun, rifles, or anything of that nature. Um, I, It's just... Uh, it's just crazy how the other side will take it or a different side will take it and spin it and make it. Oh, they want to take away. All. No, there's a specific type of gun that they want to ban. You know, in all reality, again, if, unless you have the true training for it, meaning the background and you've served in some type of armed uh, military, some type of situation like that. I don't think you need it because I don't think anybody outside of those people, I'm just going to be honest, know how to properly use that weapon or for or, you know, for the situation or use it in the proper situation, in the proper context. Again, these weapons are not for mass slaughtering people. These weapons are not to be should not to, uh, or should not to be used uh, to to just roll up to people's schools or to roll up to people's other people's neighborhoods and start shooting people. And that's a conversation that people really don't want to have. I don't think on either side, people don't really want to talk about uh preventing the crime they don't want to talk about not having crime happen they just want to either argue for or against guns really it's the people that's committing the crime in all reality and we and it's because of the access we have to two weapons that we don't need again pistols shotguns whatever you want to protect your family that's what you should have uh, again if you have a military background i'm all for you having a semi-automatic weapon because i figure as somebody with a military background uh you be protecting our neighborhood as something happened right you'd be the first person to know what to do we can all have we can all have our guns we'll just help your ass out you know what the, you know what the plan is sir or ma'am if not then you don't need it i'm just being honest with you what do you need an ak-47 for so you go rob a bank that's all you're gonna do with it that's all people do with it that the people that don't have those type of backgrounds let's be honest let's not be let's not be ridiculous they're doing one of three they're shooting up the neighborhoods they're shooting up the schools they're shooting up the the, the hotel resorts out in las vegas that's what they're doing with them and some of them might have those backgrounds and they still might be fringe. And, but again, that's what happens when you repeal uh, laws that disallow people with mental illness to obtain firearms. That's what the Republican Party did. So it comes back to one group of people. It comes back to the one party. It's I, I'm not trying to be partisan, but this is what I'm not being partisan necessarily. This is just the facts. This is what we have here. These are the facts here. They they stress the gun control. They they make it an all right ban when it's not a, a ban. It's not an outright ban. What they're telling you is you shouldn't have semi-automatics and crazy people shouldn't have access to them. We need to have better background checks, period, point blank. That's really what the gun control comes down to. And the NRA, for whatever reason, does not agree with that. Why? Because I guess it, it chips into their cells. Oh, well. That's another topic for another day. Let's get into uh, the final race here we have in Mississippi. This is what the Republicans uh, did get a win, excuse me. Tate Reeves beats out Democrat Jim Hood, uh, 52% to 47, uh, to uh, take the state of, uh, uh, sorry, Mississippi. Uh, that is for the governor's race there. Now, Hood, despite being a Democrat, was anti-abortion uh, anti and pro-gun, and I believe that's the reason why he lost. He should have just ran as a Republican. Again, there's not too many anti-Democrats. I'm sorry, anti-abortion, pro-gun Democrats that I know of. But again, it's the South. So that just goes to show you the South is weird. And they have some really, you know, they're, they're different down there. Um, 
but um yeah uh that's and i can you know of course anti-abortion i would hope that the women voters in mississippi would be keen onto that and know about that uh because it, i mean for what it's worth and again about the uh, anti-abortion and all that uh for what it's worth again i'm going to keep stressing this we can we can try to blame men we could keep trying to blame uh who we want uh if we if i already told y'all months ago the people who wrote those laws the people who drafted those laws in georgia that those anti-abortion laws were women half the people that signed off in that law were women so don't be trying to just blame men and be anti-men because that's all that was about anyway was creating the division between the regular the working class men and women so we don't have any type of connect that was bs because and, and on the law in alabama that law was signed off into law by a woman governor so we again no if she had your if she was really about your call she'd fight that right come on now i'm just saying if i was a black governor and they and they told and they gave me some legislation that it looked to me that it was just going to incarcerate black men i wouldn't sign off on it so why as a woman why as a woman governor or a woman law uh, a legislator you're getting a pat they're getting passes for signing off laws that take away your rights again we can go deeper and deeper people's again this whole liberal conservative ideology i don't know how to i don't know how to you know attack it no more again there's a lot of division here we got to know what's really going on though okay I'm, that's why i'm here i'm here to break it down okay i'm not here to to, to bash or to, to start arguments but if it starts if it starts a conversation or maybe a debate I'm good with that as well. But let's get to the, the local stuff. Of course, San Francisco had their major elections. We're going to start off with the mayor. Of course, London Breed, the incumbent, was able to beat out Ellen Zhu uh, for her re-election, 68 to 15. Of course, the, the big story here in San Francisco was that there was really nobody to really run against London Breed. Nobody of any... Um, um, Nobody really, uh, nobody that anybody really knew about. Uh, maybe except for Miss Zhu here, uh, and that's no disrespect to her. But again, the margin of victory was wide, 68 to 15. So uh, there you go. Uh, one of the other major San Francisco races, you had the District 5 super, uh, supervisor, and it looks as though Dean Preston has a slight, well, has beaten uh, the incumbent uh, Valley Brown with a slight 47% to 46%. Uh, uh, score there so it looks like we have a new district five supervisor in san francisco of course i don't live in san francisco that's just the biggest city that's near me and of course we have district attorney the district attorney race out there looks like chise boudin was able to beat out incumbent Susie loftus loftus excuse me 33 to 31 percent so it looks like some new faces are going to be in some uh, some city politics and of course the vape the vape pen ban of course prop c was upheld again i think it's bullshit ban cigarettes if you really want to stop smoking if you really want to stop young kids from getting in trouble with all that you really want to protect people's health ban all smoking don't just ban e-cigarettes that's bullshit I, I i i'm not saying that the people ain't getting sick those were all lies but again people do that every day from cigarette smoke so if you ain't banning cigarettes to me i think it's all bs i'm sorry i I can't I can't ride with you but anyways let's move on of course uh, we're gonna talk a little bit about my man's John Witherspoon everybody's favorite father figure in the movie in Hollywood and he had his funeral Tuesday and uh, first and foremost uh, I want to send some condolences to his family 
uh, some condolences to all his fans around the world. This is probably uh, one of the bigger losses, or a significant loss in the last few years. We've had so many people go, but I mean, this one in terms of the comedy world and, and just the, the black classic movies that we all know about, of course, him being the biggest, I mean, one of the biggest faces in those. Uh, but let's break, uh, I want to talk a little bit about him. Uh, well, first, let's, let's talk a little bit about his funeral. Of course, major stars were in attendance, including Ice Cube. Of course, we already know because of the Friday, uh, so was Chris Tucker. We also had uh, David Letterman uh, giving out some words for him as well. Uh, the actor comedian would pass, like I said, last week. I'm going to say right now, uh, of uh, natural causes because there hasn't been anything to come out uh, that's you know says otherwise or says exactly what he could have passed from uh, but he was uh, 77 years old uh, again like I said there's no details on his death uh, but let's break down some of his background he was born he was born January 27th in 1942 in Detroit he was one of 11 kids as a child he would learn to play the trumpet and the French horn and uh, uh, this musical talent uh, and this musical interest would all would actually permeate throughout the family because in 1966 he and his brother William would collab on lyrics to the single what becomes of the brokenhearted I did not notice that was dope when I found that out. Uh, Witherspoon would also take the comedy in about the same time and also really get active uh, in the 70s as well. He would make his first appearance on Barnaby Jones, a 1970s sitcom. He'd also make his appearances on Good Times, What's Happening, and also The Incredible Hope. In 1977, he would join the cast of The Richard Pryor Show, and that would be his kind of his culmination into the TV fame. Uh, now, during the 80s, he would also make appearances on shows such as Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, You Again, uh, 227, Amen, one of my favorites, and also What's Happening. Now, of course, that is a sequel to What's Happening. He would also uh, make his uh, feature film debut in uh, the movie called The Jazz Singer in 1980. He also made a, a role in the, he also had a role in the Keenan uh, Ivory Wayne's film, uh, I'm Gonna Get You, Slug Sucker, which is one of my favorites as well. Uh, he had a major role in that. Uh, that's kind of like, he, the, the 80s is when he kind of, uh, at least in the at least in terms of feature film uh, started to get get a lot more roles you started to see him a lot more uh, but he also make uh, noteworthy uh, noteworthy appearances in house party the five heartbeats boomerang of course we already know about him mr. Jackson and also uh, he was in the meteor man as well but 95 was one of his biggest years in film uh, at least in my opinion because of course he was in the two biggest films friday uh, at least in terms of black folk and then also he was in uh, vampire of brooklyn another smash cult hit uh, especially amongst the african-american community of course eddie murphy was in that one after 95 he returned to this he would return to the small screen of course uh, in wayne's brothers where he would play pops we already know bang 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 just Raw comedic timing. That's all I remember him for. Uh, one of the main things I remember him for. Um, he was always making people laugh. I, I, it, it, no matter what scene it was. Of course, he was in uh, the, the Friday sequels. You know, playing Craig's dad again, the dog catcher Willie, and, and just um, just a funny all around. In my opinion, I, I've never seen 
too much of his stand-up, but I'm pretty sure he, he was an awesome stand-up comedian just because of his timing on, you know, film and just TV and just the things he says and it's the way he announced it. And, the, and at the end of the day, yes, the way he coordinates, the way he coordinated himself on stage or uh, and so am I, am I, well, from what I saw in terms of the small screen, the way he co coordinated himself in film, uh, just one of the great underrated comedic actors, comedic actors of our time, in my opinion. I think, I mean, I, I do think he gets his just due, but I honestly i think he he probably could get a whole lot more um but some other notable roles for him would be mr mims and i got the hookup you gotta remember that one you gotta remember uh soul playing the blind cat uh we, he was also in the boondocks come on now don't play you already know about mr freeman and of course he had a, a couple stand-up specials as well um his most recent being, of course, you gotta coordinate. Uh, I gotta check that one out. This was, like I said, this is one of his more re uh, recent ones. I think he had started a tour at one point uh, recently as well. Uh, and also, he has another, uh, uh, well, a little less recent. This one is the last comic standing on Comedy Central. I believe he won a uh, won a contract uh, for some type of touring, I guess, out of a out of a group of like 30 contestants or something like that. So it was like a competition between uh, comedians. So he was able to win that and i think people don't i think again that that just uh my opinion uh speaks to his underrated abilities and um it's it sucks that we we lost somebody like him it really does um and it's unfortunate uh it was kind of like everybody's uh everybody's grandpa or uncle or something like that you know especially uh, in hollywood you know he was uh you know craig's dad he was uh mr jackson and boomerang so he had that presence about him as well uh fatherly always had some knowledge to, to put down even if it was hilarious knowledge and you'd be laughing the entire time but it was something that you could take away it was always a message with him and I, you can't take away that that's that's um that's a griot right there pretty much people don't uh kind of get that uh if they not into the if they're not really into the culture they're not going to understand that that's that's a griot right there we, we lost a griot um and um yeah it's a, it's but you know what it was a celebration of life so we gotta we gotta uh we gotta be thankful for what the for what we did get and be happy with what we did get because he definitely made us smile, he definitely made us laugh. And those emotions, those those things emit happiness. So that's the most important thing. He made us happy. Alright, y'all. I'm gonna take a quick break and when I come back, I'll be breaking down some sports. Of course, I'm gonna be breaking down the college football playoff rankings of just the, just the top seven because again uh we're they're only gonna be taking four in that's just the way they do it in college football it's gonna be the top four at the end of the year and then finally we're gonna be breaking down some end of the year uh awards for baseball like i said we have some golden glove winners to, to go over so i'll be right back in a couple minutes y'all y'all what is going on i am back let's break down some college football of course the first college football playoff rankings of the year have been released we'll be going over the top four and also a few teams on the outside looking in because of course only four teams are going to the playoffs so ain't no point in, ain't no use in going uh through one to 25 that's what the ap poll is for but anyways uh there's also some key differences between both lists both rankings as well as for uh well for one ohio state is the number one on 
this college football playoff rankings. And of course, LSU is uh, number one in terms of the AP poll. Uh, but let's break this. Uh, let's break this rankings down. Let's, let's break these rankings down. Excuse me. For Ohio State, of course, like I said, they are eight and zero. They are tied for first uh, in the Big Ten. It's actually a, a three-way tie between them, uh, Penn State, and also Minnesota, who's nowhere near the top. Five right now, uh, but they are somewhere, I believe, in the ether around 13 somewhere. Uh, but for Ohio State, their last game was a 38-7 win against uh, Wisconsin. I believe it's 16th right now. Uh, for Ohio State, they are 6th in total offense, and they are also 4th in rushing offense with 284 yards per game. They are also 2nd in total defense, and they are 1st, uh, I'm sorry, yes, 1st in the nation against the pass, which is 133 yards per game. So they're a balanced team. Uh, they take away the pass. They can run the ball on you, and they can score on you uh, pretty well. Uh, on top of that, I think I believe they're a top a top ten scoring offense as well. Uh, at number two, we have LSU. Uh, they will pretty much be playing in the game of the year versus Alabama. Uh, there, uh, we will be talking a little bit more about Bama in just a second because they are the number three team. But uh, that's going to be the most important game of the year. I believe this game is going to pretty much decide who is going to be in the SEC championship game and pretty much win that game because I don't believe the winner of the SEC, SEC East, which is more than likely going to be Georgia. I don't think they're going to be able to beat either one of these teams. Matter of fact, let's just say it, even if Florida were to make it, I don't think Florida could beat either LSU or Bama. That's just my uh, personal opinion. I think Bama is too good uh, in terms of uh, defensive play they're also good with the offensive line and in terms of LSU they have stars all throughout the offense including the quarterback they also have a great running back as well uh, but they do have a question here uh, in terms of their best defender Grant Delpit the safety has been missing some practice this week with a sprain I believe in his leg but he should be available Saturday uh, the question is how effective is he going to be uh and is he really healed up from that injury or they just, you know, they just need him to play. Uh, at number three, we have Alabama here. They are also 8-0. Two attack of our lowest should be healthy, but other members of the Tide are injured, including tight end Miller Forrestal with a neck and throat injury. He'll miss Saturday's game. Uh, you also got an injury uh, to linebacker Ale Cajo, who has missed another practice with a broken hand. They're saying he should be available versus LSU, but again, he's going to have that broken hand. They're also missing offensive lineman Evan Neal and also Landon Dickerson. They have both missed practices and even kicker Will Richard is also suffering from an aggravated hip flexor and there is no timetable for his return. So there is some key injuries here for Bama. Um, I don't know. I, I think, that, I mean, they're a really good squad to, I, to the point where I think they, that this game with LSU is still going to be competitive. I don't think you just say, oh, LSU is going to uh, kind of uh, run run the table. I think definitely Tua is going to have to play. Uh, he's going to definitely need to play for these guys uh, for Saturday for them to have a really good chance. Uh, but I think this this is going to be a, a much, you know, it's going to be a, a, high, a, a matchup worth the hype. Uh, usually it is. However, there is a chance where we have a I believe it was a 2012 situation where he only scored like nine points. Uh, I think, you know, Bama scored like nine, LSU scored like seven, something like that. It was a really low scoring game. There's a possibility for that as well, that both defenses just come and play just really well. Um, so it, there's, okay, so there's one or two ways that this could happen. There's, there's a there's a chance that this goes really, really slow, and there's a ton of defense and a ton of turnovers possibly, 
in a really low scoring game or this is just a bomb burner and the last team who has the ball can win i think there's only going to be that if if two attack of a lower plays if, if he doesn't play it's going to be a very boring slow game and it'll probably still be uh you know whoever has the last wins but it's going to be a different pace in my opinion and finally at number four we have penn state another big 10 team here like i said there's a three-way tie for first in the big 10 right now and of course big uh, sorry, Penn State is a part of that at a no. Uh, their last game was a W, uh, 28 to 7 at Michigan State. They are ninth in overall defense and they are second against the Warren, which is 68 yards allowed. Uh, again, this offense is a little bit quirky. They don't really get 30 points or more. Uh, so I don't think they're like a dominant offense. It'll be interesting to see what happens when they face off against Ohio State. Uh, one of these teams are facing off against Minnesota this week, and I believe it's Penn State. Uh, that should be an interesting one because I do believe that Minnesota can score. They play really well defensively, but they'll put up about 35 points on you. Uh, I think they had up, they had a uh, outscore their opponents I think about 82-0 at one point this season so uh, at least their last three opponents up to this point uh, but Minnesota's really good Penn State's you know for what is uh, for what is worth is good right now uh, but I'm interested in seeing what Minnesota can do against this squad um, take a look out for that one I might even you know what for what it's worth I might even put an upset notice on that game uh, do not be surprised uh, if Minnesota can pull out an upset they have a really good they have a really strong squad this year uh, like I said they have we have three teams on the outside looking in these are pretty much your next squads up uh, because of course we're gonna be we're gonna uh, we're coming down the pipe we're playing some very important games this week it's very likely that uh, teams one through four are gonna lose games this is the way college football uh, rolls uh, as far as who I think is gonna be uh, on tap to take a loss we have at this point we have penn state i think they have a very difficult game with minnesota that they could lose so we have that team potentially taking a loss and of course you have uh, LSU and Alabama they're playing each other directly this week well of course that means one of those teams are going to take a loss I think the first team, uh, the first team to make a move uh, into the top four to replace one of these guys is going to be Clemson uh, somebody it, uh, there's going to be at least two of these teams to drop out I believe uh, even with Alabama as good as Alabama or LSU being they're going to drop out of the top the top four to make room for either I know Clemson is going to uh, have a spot uh, but I think Georgia or Oregon can make themselves uh it they, they can make their way into the top four with a solid victory this weekend I think for Oregon they're gonna get a ton they're gonna get tons of push uh a, a big really really big push near the end if they can stay undefeated and they win that uh Pac-12 title against Utah as well because guess what Utah is a spot right below them so they're a credible opponent they're a really tough opponent and the dust can get past them I think that's an extra push for them as far as Georgia is concerned I don't think Georgia can make the last four because I don't think they would they would have to win that kind and again, I don't think the winner of the SEC East is going to beat the SEC, uh, the, the winner of the SEC West. And the winner of the SEC, of course, is going to have a spot in the playoff. Uh, we already know that. Uh, I think the big question is, uh, are we going to get two Big t uh, Big Ten members, which I doubt. We already we're already going to eliminate that. So I think we're only going to have one Big Ten member this year in the, in the playoff, and also one SEC member. So that means we're going to have possibly Clemson, and that means either Oregon 
or maybe or maybe the winner of the Pac-12. So it'll be Oregon or Utah. I think that's what we're looking at this year. We're looking at a very, very uh, clear-cut year, a clear-cut chance of seeing some real uh, some real conference matchups in the in the playoff. Uh, we're going to see a Big Ten team take on a Pac-12 team, uh, something like that, SEC team, something like that. So you get a chance to see just how good uh, these teams are this year. I definitely think uh, it should be expanded into eight teams, that being the playoff before. At least this year, you get a, you're, you're, I think you're very likely to get a good mix this year of different conferences. And I think this is really what they want. I think you only really get it if you have eight teams on a consistent basis. You'll get more parity if you have eight teams. But this is the first year that I can say that you really have some consistency here. You won't have an SEC-dominated uh, championship. I don't think there's a chance you're going to get a Big Ten-dominated championship. You're very likely to see Oregon versus Clemson. You might see Oregon versus Bama. You might see uh, Oregon versus LSU. Oregon versus Ohio State. Oregon can make their way in there. Clemson can make their way in there. I think those are the teams that make their way in there by the end of the year. By week 12, you're going to see the winner. Like I said, because I, I pretty much, for what it's worth, Clemson does not play the best schedule, but we're just going to say that we're just going to say that they're going to finish this year undefeated. So they're going to have to take a spot. They're going to account for a spot. There's no way that Penn State finishes undefeated. Uh, maybe even Ohio State. Ohio State might even be the one to take a loss. So these teams in the top four that you see right now, I only think two of these teams are going to finish undefeated. There's, there's only they, uh, it's a 50-50 because remember LSU is is playing Alabama this weekend, so one of those teams are going to have to, to to fall. And I still I do believe that Ohio State and Penn State play in the same conference, and if they don't, they're going to play each other in the conference championship game. Okay, so it's gonna it's this is gonna work itself out for those my college football fans. This is gonna get exciting. I'm telling you, you're gonna have a really balanced playoff this year. That's what I'm predicting. You heard it here first. I'm going for the Ducks to win. You should already know this. Ducks versus Clemson 2020 uh, or yeah, 2020 National Championship. Uh, let's go to baseball. Of course, we have the MLB. Uh, the MLB season, of course, is over, uh, but it's time to give out the awards. First things first, we're going to give out, uh, well, I have uh, the Golden Glove winners for this year. The Golden Glove winners are reserved for the best fielders in the league or both leagues, uh, the AL and the NL. So we're going to break down the winners here. We have some more to go over as well. I believe there's a defensive player of the year. I'm going to get to you guys at near the end of the week. Uh, there's also there are, there's also going to be the Cy Young Award that's going to be passed out the 11th of November. We also got the MVP that's coming up soon. So we'll get to all those awards as they come. But first and foremost, today we have the 2019 Golden Glove winners uh at first base in the american league we have matt olsen from the oakland a's he led all first basemen in defensive runs saved with 13 this season he also had um excuse me he also had 36 home runs in an ops of 896 so he's a balanced player very good defensively very good offensively, uh, basically MVP for the A's. In the National League, you have Anthony Rizzo. He only made the he only made excuse me he only made five defensive errors all season, and he had 30 plus uh, ground outs that he forced uh, batters into. He had that was one of the top numbers in the National League. So Anthony Rizzo is your Golden Glove winner at first base in the National League. At second base in the American League, you have Yomer Sanchez of the uh, Chicago White Sox. 
He led all the he led the AL in the ultimate zone rating, and he made 116 out of zone plays. Uh oh man, baseball is so sabermetric and so stat driven. Uh, let me see if I can remember what the ultimate zone rating is all about. It's basically just uh, they're just critiquing how you're fielding, uh, the type of catches you're making, um, within the confines of uh, your your position on the field. So for a second baseman, he has a certain for a second baseman he has a certain uh, area in which he has to defend, uh, and for for uh Yomer Sanchez within that zone within his zone of play within that you know radius of second base he's an awesome playmaker pretty much and outside of that uh and outside of that zone outside of that area of second base he's made 116 defensive plays so if you guys can get it I barely can get it myself I'm trying to understand baseball uh stats and all that um yeah uh he's a he's, for what it will for lack of a better word, for as layman terms, he's a good base. He's good at defense in baseball. He would also beat out uh, DJ LeMahieu and also uh, Jose Altuve for uh, a Golden Glove. So good job to Yomer Sanchez. In the National League, we have Colton Wong of the Cardinals. He had uh, he had 16 defensive run saves, which which led the NL. He also uh, at second base, and he also led the National League and wins above replacement. So wins above replacement is a little bit easier for me to explain. Um, pretty much wins above replacement is the amount of wins uh, that a team would get if they were to replace you with somebody else. So uh, for Colton Wong, what that means is uh, it's a it's a very, mm, it's hard. Oh, again, this is one that's kind of hard to explain too. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Baseball, baseball stats and terminology. Oh my God, I'm still learning. Uh, give me, give me a break, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, at shortstop in the AL, we have Francisco Lindor of Cleveland. We also have Nick Ahmed of Arizona. He will lead all shortstops uh, in defensive run saves uh, with 18. Now that's easy. Uh, that's preventing runs. That's all I can say. You're getting people out. There you go. He got, he got 18. He, he prevented people from scoring 18 times. That's the best way I can I can say it. At third base, we have Matt Chapman of the A's. This is his second consecutive Golden Glove. Go A's. He led his position, which is third base, like I said, in defensive run saves at 18. And no other baseman had more than three. Uh, this is the second A's third baseman to win a Gold Glove outside of Eric Chavez. So that's some cool company to have. Uh, in the National League, you have Nolan Orenado. Uh, of the Rockies, he would go. He, this is his seventh Gold Glove award, and he led the, the National League in ultimate zone rating. Again, I need to talk to somebody who knows their baseball because I I don't get. It. I read all. I I read it for almost thirty minutes, and I still don't understand it. I need to have. I need to watch something on YouTube about it or something. Uh, in the outfield, in uh, starting at left field. In the American League, we have Alex Gordon of Kansas City. He played in 1,260 innings, the second most in baseball, and he's also the oldest uh, player in the outfield to win since Ichiro Suzuki in 2010. In the National League, we have David Peralta uh, from Arizona. He will lead the National League in uh, in defensive rent, uh, defensive defensive run saves which is 10 and that's for outfielders uh and in center field we have uh in the american league kevin kiermeyer of the tampa bay rays he has 17 outs of the average and that was second behind juan soto 
I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna try to guess on this one. I read about this one too. Outs above average. Oh man, I can't. <laughs> Baseball saving metrics or something else. I I I can't do it. In the National League, we have Lorenzo Kane. He also had 14 outs above average. Just know um, that they are exceedingly better uh, than uh, than their than their outfielding peers in their respective leagues, meaning uh, they are better performers just by by uh, by getting people out. They get people out at a significantly higher rate. That's all I can say. That's that's in layman's terms, okay? In right field in the American League, we have Mookie Betts out of the Boston. Uh, out of Boston, uh, he tied uh, for tenth overall with 15 defensive run shares. He also led the American League. Uh, he also leads the American League, excuse me, with 98 defensive run shares since 2016. Wow. Balling. Uh, and in the National League, we have Cody Bellinger. Uh, he had 19 defensive uh, defensive run saves, which is tied for most uh, with the right fielders. Uh, that's tied with Aaron Judge. And also, we're going to go to catcher now. Uh, in the American League, we have Roberto Perez of the Indians. Uh, he had zero based balls this season and what that is is a, pi a pitch a catcher cannot control allowing a base runner to advance bam in parentheses and everything but anyways zero he allowed zero though so he does not he does not i mean he has perfect concentration he don't give up no defensive plays or no errors like that he also had 29 defensive run saves which I, if i'm not mistaken let all catchers uh in the national league we had jt realmuto one of my favorite catchers he plays for the phillies he had a 1.88 pop time, which leads uh, all catchers. And for those of you who do not know what that is, that is uh, that is the time it takes to get up off the ground and throw the ball uh, when you see somebody stealing. So as soon as somebody tries to steal, he's up and at him. Bam, they're out. Usually that's how it goes. He's up quick. He's one of the quickest catchers in the game. Don't try to steal on him. His uh, his arm strength is at 88 miles per hour. So when you try to steal, he's you know, again, you can't you can't run on him. He caught 43 base runners this season. No one in the league has more than 27. So, like, I, again, when you try to steal, he's throwing it to a base. You're not beating with that 80-mile-per-hour arm. Man, you're not beating him. You're not getting – you're not stealing. You just, just stay on base. That's what the point here is. Uh, we have some pictures to talk about as well. In the American League, uh, we have Mike Leak. He did, end, he did end the season playing for Arizona, uh, but he got – well, he qualified for this award playing for Seattle. He will lead off uh, pitchers in the Sabre Defensive Index rating. Uh, he was number one. And then finally in the National League, we have Zach Rinke of the Astros. He ended the season with the Astros, but he qualified for the award with the Diamondbacks. Uh, he had 146 innings pitched in 2019 with Arizona, and that pretty much led the National League. There you go. All right, y'all. I'm going to call it a wrap for today. Uh, my next episode, we, we will be breaking down uh, some Thursday night football. We're going over the stats from that. I'll also be breaking down three key takeaways from uh, from last week. We'll also be uh, breaking down three uh, quick, uh, three key questions uh, for week 10, uh, which is coming up now. Um, we also, oh, I have a review for you guys. Like I said, I'll be going over the Joker. Uh, that was an interesting one. So we're going to be talking about that later on this week as well. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's it that I know. Well, I'll, I'll I'll think about it as I as I go along and I'll I'll just have it for you guys. I'll have it ready for you guys, whatever I want to do. All right, y'all. This is your man, El Jamal. I'm signing out for today. Um, 
Peace out. One love. If anybody hasn't told you yet, I love you. And I'll talk to you guys later. All right now.